Hello, and welcome to the Plague Cycle edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which is going to be very plague-centric this week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And we have the one and only Charles Kenny. Welcome, Charles. Hi. Introduce yourself and tell me about the new book you have out. My name's uh, Charles Kenny. Sorry, you know that. Uh, I'm a <laughs> senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And the new book is called The Plague Cycle. It's about how infectious disease has basically dominated the history of the planet. Everything you see in the planet from, you know, which countries are rich and which countries are poor and racial makeup and how men and women are structured comes back in some way to the history of infectious disease. It's a great book. We're going to talk a bunch about that. We're going to talk about how COVID is changing things in terms of trade, in terms of migration, in terms of women's participation in the economy. We're going to talk about vaccines. We're going to talk about how best to optimally distribute them and how close we are to that. We're going to have a whole Slate Plus segment about IP in vaccines. It's a fascinating conversation. I'm really happy with this one. So do stay tuned for Charles Kenny's insights into everything plague-related coming up on Slate Money. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. So, Charles, you were writing this book long before COVID came along. Yep. And then I guess the first question would be, like, did anything change? Did you look at COVID and go, wait, hang on a sec. This is more relevant than ever. This is like this this pandemic is weirdly unlike all of the stuff that I've been writing in the book. Or or which way did it go? I guess I get, I get credit for the fact that I was writing a book that ended saying, you know, look, there really could be a, another big pandemic and we need to prepare better for it than we're preparing for it. I lose credit for the fact that the book didn't come out before that pandemic hit. And frankly, I probably lose a bit too on the grounds that I was coming up with numbers about, you know, oh, it's going to cost two trillion to respond. I mean, clearly I was underestimating the, the potential scale of the thing. So sort of adding COVID to the story was, was fairly straightforward. Um, I lost the ability to say, I sort of told you so. <laughs> Give us the big picture arc of history kind of story that you're telling in this book, because it is it does seem, reading this book, that basically everything that has happened in human history can be explained quite parsimoniously just by pointing at plagues and pandemics. Yes, there was that book a while ago, A History of the World in, in Six Glasses of Whiskey or something. I, I, I tried to do the same with plagues. Really, the book sort of in the broadest sense is about, is about connections, that lots of people living close together and trading and interconnected is both the force for sort of human progress, but it's also the force for the spread of horrible diseases. Uh, indeed, you know, the, the emergence and spread of horrible diseases. And so kind of weakening the link between infection and connection is what allowed us to create the modern world, which is more connected than ever, which is great and fantastic. And one of the reasons we live in such a healthier, wealthier world than ever before in history, and even last year, but it also means we're you know, sort of more exposed than ever to the risk of, of an infection that can spread more rapidly and spread further than ever before. 
One thing that struck me about the book too was, I mean, it's such an optimistic book. You wouldn't think a book called The Plague Cycle would give me hope, but it really puts COVID into perspective. And I believe you're saying in the book that it's not as bad as some of these other plagues have been. The response has been faster and we have the tools to fight it in a way we obviously didn't have in the past. Yeah. At one point in the book, you go, you kind of say, well, for much of human history, this wouldn't even have counted as a plague. It's kind of like minor. Can you talk more about that? Make us feel better. (laughs) The response to COVID could be looked at in two ways. One is it was an absolute catastrophe. And we had tools that could have stopped this thing faster, with far fewer deaths, with much less economic and social upheaval. And the other way of looking at it is we kind of have responded to it better than we have any plague previously in history. Now, that partially tells you how low the bar was in the past, right? Uh, But (laughs) COVID-1, for all it's been horrible, is no Black Death. You know, the Black Death was killing a third, maybe a half, maybe even two thirds in places of the European population back in the 14th century. And COVID never had sort of that potential. But it did have, and sadly we've seen, the potential to, to kill millions. And we have tools to respond to that now that we didn't we didn't 10, 15 years ago, let alone, you know, 100 years ago. So 10, 15 years ago, we probably would have developed a vaccine against COVID, but it would have taken a lot longer. 100 years ago, we already knew some of the techniques that we've misused this time. So we knew about masking. We knew about social distancing. We knew about restricting travel, you know, all that kind of stuff. We, we did it not terribly effectively during the 1918 flu pandemic. But, you know, we, we didn't know as much as we know now. We certainly you know, couldn't have rolled out the tests nearly as fast as we did with, with COVID-19. So sort of from all sorts of points of view, we're, we're in a much better place than we were. We managed to use some of that knowledge and some of that technology, but just not nearly well enough. And I sort of hope the lesson for next time is, you know, the technology is fantastic. It helps get us out of this situation faster than ever before. But we still need to get better at kind of the old fashioned stuff, the masking, the, the, the social distancing and so on, until those technologies come online. Can you talk a little bit about the irony here that the New Yorker recently had a long piece about this, that the pandemic seems to have been by far far the most damaging, causing the most infections, causing the most deaths in places which used the bleeding edge technology in terms of testing and everything else to its greatest extent. So, you know, you have lots of testing in in the UK and the US and incredibly high mortality rates, and you have very little masking, very little testing in places like India with very low mortality rates. So like, is all that testing really helping? It is incredible how much we still don't know about why mortality rates and infection rates around the world vary like they do. It's not clear why Africa is doing so well, for example. And it's probably some combination of actually they had a a reasonably rapid response compared to much of the world in, in terms of shutting things down in the first place. It might be about weather. It might be about previous infections. We didn't notice that as it happened, give you some protection against COVID-19. You know, there could be a whole bunch of factors. And it's it's amazing how little, you know, even today we know about what's behind it. I would say that testing is great and we should be doing a lot more of it in the United States and the UK. Testing is really particularly helpful when there aren't very many cases out there. So, you know, the Vietnams and the South Koreas of this world probably haven't tested as much as the US and the UK because they haven't had to test as much as the UK and the US because they controlled this thing at the start. And so uh, track and test regimes didn't have to involve millions of people. It involved thousands of people. And that's what makes them manageable. That's what means you can plausibly track and uh, test and then isolate everybody who gets the infection and control it, stop it in its tracks. And in the US and the UK, yeah, sure, we tested a lot of people, but it was after the disease was already completely out of control. And so I guess the lesson there is make sure you don't get to the point where the, the infection is out of control. Put in the social distancing and so on very early on before the problem becomes simply unmanageable. One thing you note in the book a few times is that some of the solutions that we come up with to these plagues and infectious diseases are worse, make things worse. So uh, it brings out the nativists and the bigots. Also, you seem to suggest that shutdowns aren't always the best solution 
either. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that, like looking back now, a year later, did the shutdowns go too far? Should we have done less of that even? I mean, the U.S. never really locked anything down technically. Well, bits of it did. Like New York got shut down for a while. It was regional. But like Germany is still largely shut down. And there's the problem again. I think had we shut down early and hard, that would have led to a shorter shutdown and less deaths than shutting down partially and late. And there's a sort of, there's a lesson there for the planet, right? The way you make a pandemic a non-issue is you deal with it before it gets big. And that means if it starts in China, you deal with it in China and you get the world as a whole doing everything they possibly can to shut the thing down you know, where it begins. Now, China didn't help with that, but nor, frankly, did the rest of the world. So I think for next time, we need to do a lot better at shutting it down immediately where it starts rather than sort of waiting around. And you know, partial solutions are no solution to this problem. So I am in favour of of lockdowns. I can't believe what you know Governor Abbott did in in Texas. This line about how you know he's he's freeing Texans to go about their way. Well, yeah, only the ones who aren't going to die as a result of the end of the masking mandate. You know, we need these restrictions right now, but they are massively expensive. They have you know horrible social and economic costs. They are the worst solution apart from no solution. And, you know, Abbott has gone to no solution, and I think that's a disaster. But, you know, preferably we'd be using better solutions. And that sort of also speaks to the to the issue of travel bans. I'm not against travel bans sort of altogether. I think if, if I was the New Zealand government at the moment, if I was the government of Vietnam at the moment, if I was running Taiwan at the moment, I'd be saying at least, you know, there needs to be strict quarantine and multiple testing before you're allowed into my country because my country doesn't have COVID hardly at all. And so I, and I think travel bans have their place. But in the United States, what we did, and I think in Europe, largely what happened was we introduced partial travel bans late. COVID was already here. The only effect of the travel ban pretty much was to make a whole bunch of people fly back as fast as they could to the United States and wait for hours in crowded halls with no masks uh, to get through you know, overburdened custom systems, which is sort of the perfect way to make sure that we spread COVID as fast as possible. And indeed, I think it's probably one of the reasons New York was hit so hard so early was because of introducing this partial travel ban. Let me ask you about the economic consequences of the pandemic and of the associated responses to the pandemic. Because while we've, on the one hand, had big differences between countries in terms of how bad the pandemic has been, we've also seen very big differences between countries in terms of how the economies have reacted. And the US economy, for instance, seems to be doing pretty well, all things considered, much better than we thought it would be doing this time last year compared to much of Europe, for instance. And can you, does that make sense to you? Is there like an intuitive way to explain that? I don't have one. It amazes me how in the past, the economic effects of, sort of short-term economic effects of pandemics have been remarkably small. I mentioned in the book that the, you know, the, the Black Death hits, the third to half of people are, are dropping dead everywhere. And the and the Hundred Years' War is going on at the time, and it stops for a couple of months, and then they're, they're back to the fighting. It's like, you know, business as usual, minus half the army. And that does seem to be sort of a pattern through history that actually the, the economic impact is smaller than you might expect. I hope we see that worldwide with COVID. But there are just these signs that, especially in some developing countries, the, the effects are going to go on for a while, partially because they won't get the vaccines as fast as rich countries do, but also that, you know, they piled up a bunch of debt over the last couple of years or so, in part, you know, in response to the to the global crisis and the slowdown in trade and so on and so forth. And so those effects are going to go on. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic we will bounce back. And as you say, in the United States, it seems like the bounce back has happened fairly fast. I think probably because, as you were mentioning earlier, we never really locked down properly over much of the country. So it'll look all right in the United States economically, perhaps, perhaps next year, the year after, in a way that places that locked down harder might actually look a little bit worse. The flip side of that is that You've got to ask what would have happened if they hadn't locked down and what would have happened is a lot more deaths. And, you know, beyond just the human tragedy of that, you know, that's not good for the economy. I wonder, too, in the U.S., I mean, we are doing well overall, but there are certain populations that won't be bouncing back for a long time. Long term employment is up. 
of women's labor force participation, which we'll get into later, is at 1980s levels. I imagine the gender gap in pay is, has shrunk a little bit just because so many people on the low end have just lost their jobs. So I wonder if, you know, it's like the, the disadvantaged people in the U.S. and around the world are going to feel this for a while, while, you know, everyone else at the top will bounce back quick. Absolutely. This, In all sorts of ways, this crisis has been a force for growing inequality. I'm doing some uh, work uh, led by my colleague Megan uh, O'Donnell at the Centre for Global Development on sort of the gendered impact of COVID worldwide. And one of the things that she's been reporting on is you can look at the immediate mortality impact and you know it looks like it's probably globally worse for men than women, maybe because of comorbidities, maybe because of you know, uh, men take more risks as a, a general rule worldwide. Uh, maybe it's genetics. We don't quite know, but any, maybe it's all of that. But if you look at the social and economic impacts, they definitely have been worse for women almost everywhere. And they've been comparatively worse for women, the worse that the COVID outbreak has been. So, you know, the more there's been cases, the more there's been shutdowns, the more the gap between men and women open up. And actually, you know, Latin America is one of the places that, that looks the worst in this regard, that you're really seeing huge gaps open up in employment. You know, there were already gaps before, obviously, before COVID, there were already gender gaps in employment, but now they've, they've grown further. And I, I'm with you that that is going to be an ongoing effect, partially because a whole lot of businesses have just shut down. And, you know, it takes time to start a new business. And so, Given there seems to have been this sort of gendered impact, you know, partially on the grounds of of who traditionally takes care of children, but you know it seems to be more than that. It also seems to be the kind of businesses that women run, for example, seem to have been more affected. I'm with you that that's the kind of effect that's going to go on for longer. I'd say another sort of broader thing is just back to the arc of the book, if you will, that this is a story about connections. I really honestly do believe that the defeat of infection, or at least the victories we've had against infection in the past, that have allowed for connections, that have made urbanisation sort of safe for people. You know, it used to be that uh, cities were death traps and the only way they kept populations up was by importing people. And now actually cities on average are, are safer than rural areas. Cities are just a massive force for economic progress. It used to be that trading, especially with the tropics, was just, you know, deadly and now Americans die of the same things abroad as they die off here because they're all dying of strokes and and heart attacks and stuff because largely we've dealt with the infectious threat. That kind of connectivity is just really central to economies. And we've had a year and a half of that kind of connectivity largely going away. You know, people aren't meeting each other in bars and at conferences and at restaurants and so on, either in cities or traveling across the world to do that. And beyond the the economic cost, which I think is really big, I think we'll probably you know, see a dip in innovation over the next few years. We'll see fewer new firms founded and so on. That's sort of a human tragedy. I, I met my wife in a country in which I was not born, and I am delighted that I was able to travel somewhere else to meet her. There are millions of us. You know, I think it's something like a quarter of US marriages involve partners from different countries. A lot of that didn't happen over the last year. That's, you know, sort of thousands of romances that didn't, millions of romances that didn't occur. And so I don't want to say that there won't be effect. I'm with you. There'll, there'll be social and economic effects that, that are gendered and worse for groups that are already further behind. There will be long-term impacts in terms of the quality of life. I'm still comparatively optimistic, if you will, that we'll come back. I mean, some people are talking about the, the death of cities, and I think that's just you know massively over, overplayed. Some people are talking a, about a, a, a decade-long COVID-related uh, recession. I, I don't think we'll see that. I was just looking at a story about how real estate transactions in Manhattan in February were up 73%, like everywhere. <laughs> the rebound of cities story, I think, is is happening quicker than anyone thought it would be. But I want to zoom back a bit on the gender impact of infectious disease, because this is one of the most interesting parts of your book. Like, Explain how women's participation in society has been driven by plagues. It's a story that starts when history starts, which is to say agriculture and civilization, I think, were really terrible for women. We went from a, a situation in hunter-gatherer societies, where it seems mostly there was comparative gender equality. And that's partially linked to the fact that uh, there was less need for the average woman to have seven or eight kids just to keep population stable. 
immediately you get into agriculture and civilization, you get this wave of infections, you know, whole new infections that never existed before that, that, that jump species from animals and evolve and so on. Measles and smallpox, uh, a whole range. And these diseases end up largely affecting the young, killing off children at massive rates. You know, more than half of children die before the age of five most places most of the time through history. And so just to sort of keep population stable, suddenly women have to spend nearly all of their you know, thir- 20s and 30s giving birth to children or nursing them, as I say, just to sort of keep population stable. And uh, the book, I, I, I sort of point at the Code of Hammurabi, where, you know, there's an early, early set of laws from one of the first cities, and women are treated like property. And, you know, that doesn't seem to have been the case in hunter-gatherer societies. It does rather quickly become the case in early civilization. And, you know, the situation gets a bit better over time. And one of the upswings, with some irony, is after the Black Death in Europe, uh, where you kill off half the workforce, it makes labour more valuable. A classic supply and demand situation. And one of the results is more women are brought into the labour force, in particular to look after livestock. And the conditions of their employment include staying without child. And so average uh, ages of marriage go up, sort of quality of life for everybody goes up because it means average incomes increase. But in particular for women, you know, they are now sort of free to be in the workforce a bit and having slightly fewer fewer children that are slightly healthier. So this mass calamity kind of in the long term had a somewhat positive effect on women. <laughs> yeah, I definitely um, highlighted when I came to the place in the book where it said civilization has been bad for women. <laughs> Or it started out as a bad deal for women. I was like, I knew it. <laughs> I also, I mean, I do think that the sort of the reversal has, you know, the fight against infection is one of the many factors behind mm-hmm. somewhat improved, still a long way to go, uh, gender equality worldwide. That, you know, we, we've gone from a situation where the average woman was having seven children to one where the average woman worldwide is having sort of two and a half. It's not just sort of the childbearing and rearing issue there. This is also about the health impacts that the proportion of women who who died as a result of childbirth was horribly high. It was sort of a third who suffered some sort of injury as a result of multiple childbirth. It's just a massive drain on, you know, sort of the ability of women to take equal part in society. I mean, so, you know, bad for men, terrible for women. And that problem has far from gone away, especially in in the developing world, but it's a lot smaller than it used to be. Maternal mortality and morbidity has gone down a lot because each individual birth is less risky. Thank you, antibiotics and so on. But also women are having fewer children on average. So that, you know, there are fewer births to go wrong, if you will. And so I do think that's a that's a really powerful force behind gender equality. I'd also say behind sort of the the sexual revolution and sort of the idea that sex can be for for fun as well as for procreation, that probably is partially driven by that change. But yeah, I, you know, the, the fight against infection is a fight for women's rights. Yeah, a fight for women's rights. And like you were saying before, a fight for the city. Can't have healthy cities without healthy residents, which was something we were sort of talking about last week also. I feel like it keeps coming up. But you had that great strand in your book just about until civilization prioritized the health of the majority, things didn't go very well. And I feel like we're at that crossroads again now because we need to prioritize the health of the majority. And there are all these troubling little strands, you know, where women aren't doing as well or where the poor aren't doing as well. And that's where you really need to focus the health response for everyone's success, basically. Yes. If the last year hasn't taught us that sort of our health is connected and the health of one is the health of all, I don't know what would. If you look at the city of Rome and the height of the empire in the early early centuries AD, and you look at senators and their families, not the ones who died in a war or, you know, being stabbed on the way to the forum, but the ones who, who died <laughs> of, of peaceful causes, their average age of death is 30. Now, we have Roman cookbooks from the time, and by golly, they knew how to put a meal together. It's not that these people were malnourished, if anything, probably quite the opposite. It's that the sort of the public health situation was grim. They were all dying from infectious diseases because they were living in a you know city of a million people, all packed together, some sewage system, some clean water, famously, you know, the, the aqueducts and so on. But but basically, you know, with very few public health interventions, no vaccines, no antibiotics. And so, you know. The rich died too. And so I'm with you that for sort of moral reasons, we ought to be responding to this pandemic, thinking again about do we really want to have this huge gap in the quality of healthcare between rich and poor, between black and white and so on in this country and globally, but not just for moral reasons, for 
purely self-interested reasons, you know, we've really got to think about universal healthcare. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So let me, I wasn't intending to go here, but I think I feel I need to ask this. In terms of vaccine distribution, there's definitely a school of thought that says all of the vaccines should have been sold to one global agency that would then distribute them to individual countries according to exactly what you're talking about, like, you know, optimizing outcomes for the planet. And instead, what we wound up with was this like dog eat dog world, a little bit like actually when in the early days of the pandemic, when all of the different states were fighting with each other to get PPE. And everyone's like, this is dumb. The federal government should just buy all the PPE and then allocate it rather than having the states try and outbid each other because that doesn't help anyone except for, you know, a few middlemen. How far are we right now from an optimal allocation of vaccines? This is one of these better than ever before terrible nonetheless uh, cases. I keep on coming back to it looks plausible like we really will vaccinate a lot of the world within two years, two and a half years of of the pandemic starting, which is pretty impressive. Um, I compare, for example, AIDS, where I hope we'll have a vaccine soon. But we're a lot more than two years since the start of the AIDS pandemic. You know, if you go back further, obviously, for a lot of pandemics, we didn't have a vaccine at all. So, yay, human progress. On the other hand, as you point out, we're doing disastrously at prioritising. We have COVAX. Uh, we have this, you know, international scheme to make sure that some vaccines get to the poorest countries. And, you know, I think we're up to a few million by now, uh, which sounds great, but on a planet of 7 billion doesn't get you all that far. We've also seen um, China and Russia, actually, and in, indeed, I think to date, most of the doses that have hit uh, low and lower middle income countries have come from China and Russia donating or selling vaccines. So, you know, we're making some progress, but not nearly fast enough. I don't know how much we could have done better given where we started, which is to say, COVAX, this you know system to make sure that some of the vaccines were purchased and sent to developing countries, wasn't set up until the pandemic had begun. And what you really want is a COVAX to pre-exist and so that it can get to the front of the queue when it comes to buying these vaccines. Because the problem isn't that COVAX and indeed, you know, various other purchasers can't purchase vaccines. It's that they're at the back of the queue, that their vaccines will come sometime next year. And so, you know, what we want is this international system to be up and running. So it's there in time to be one of the first people making pre-purchase orders for vaccines for next time. So I kind of hope COVAX stays around after after the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we sort of have the muscle there to use next time we need it. So we do better. Could you just explain what COVAX is? Sorry, I don't... It's a sort of a group purchasing mechanism. Donor countries, rich countries are, are giving money to this international organization linked to the 
World Health Organization, that's buying up a whole load of vaccines and largely donating some selling those vaccines to poor countries. It's a great thing. And I'm you know, really glad we set it up. We set it up, I think, in March or April last year. So, you know, early, quite quick for an international organization to be set up, but still too late compared to, you know, they're already the UK and the US and Canada and whatever had put in millions and millions of orders for more vaccines than they could ever use, you know, so they kind of got to the front of the queue. The other problem is the pricing problem, that it's quite easy to move yourself up the queue. You promise to pay a lot more money. So COVAX by itself is not the solution to the issue if it can be outbid by countries that get get desperate. And I think we're a long way from the sort of perfect solution you were talking about, Felix, frankly, because the idea that the world at the moment is going to set up an institution that basically tells the United States and and the United Kingdom and China, you know, you can't have more than 10% of your population vaccinated and we vaccinated 10% of the population of the rest of the world. You know, I I, I wish we were in that kind of world, but we're not. And the other weird thing that I that I learned from Bloomberg Business Week this week is the the nineteen dollars fifty per dose that the United States is paying for the Pfizer vaccine. I mean, we in America managed to get much more of the Pfizer vaccine than anyone else. We did get to the front of the queue. We're paying nineteen fifty per dose. What's interesting to me is that that's the lowest price per dose that any country is paying anywhere in the world, as far as I can tell. The Israel, which also got to the front of the queue, had to pay $30. There is a lot of opacity about how much other countries are paying, but it looks like in the European Union, the price is closer to $30 than it is to 20 And if you look at the kind of reports coming out of places like Argentina and Brazil in terms of how much they're having to pay, like it's going up from there. And then you had the Pfizer CFO on on the earnings call in February saying, yeah, well, we're in a pandemic right now. So we have to kind of give concessionary pricing and have mere 20% profit margins. But eventually, we we should be able to sell this stuff for like 150 or 175, because that's how much vaccines go for. Yeah, it's a mess. And it's a mess in part because well, I mean, we don't know what's going on. So some of the differential pricing is about the fact that some countries you know, paid some of the upfront costs. So they paid for some of the research and development and they paid for some of the trials and so on and so forth. So they, you know, they, they put money in up front and so expect a, a lower cost at the other end. Some of this is about timing. Um, so you know, people who are trying to jump to the front of the queue are paying paying more sometimes, uh, although not always. Uh, some of this is about the ability to deliver. Some of this is about who takes uh, legal responsibility if it all goes horribly wrong. So you know, if there are a bunch of people who take the vaccine and claim they got sick because of it, or, or take the vaccine and actually genuinely did get sick because of it, God forbid. You know, who is it who's in charge of dealing with that problem is a complex contractual point which can have an effect on pricing and various other things. Although although let's be clear that in reality, like every single vaccine contract to a first approximation that suddenly that I've ever heard of in terms of COVID has amazingly ironclad clauses basically saying that, you know, Pfizer or Moderna or whoever is never going to be held responsible for side effects. Certainly in the United States, there is actually a federal entity that pays out if you get sick from taking a vaccine. What's fascinating is that even when countries agreed to those contractual clauses, like there was this story about Argentina, Pfizer was still saying, well, yeah, but there might be some residual legal obligations and so what we want is like a lien on all of your foreign embassies so that if there's any residual obligation, we don't need to sue you. We can just seize your embassy. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Pfizer is creating a problem where there isn't one. But as you are suggesting, Pfizer is at least uh, acting as if there might be a problem. There. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it makes these contracts more complex and, and can do weird things to pricing. What's really annoying, and I am incredibly frustrated about is we're having this conversation largely in the dark because most of these contracts, despite the fact nearly all of them are are between, you know, a, a public entity and a pharmaceutical company, nearly all of these contracts are are not published. Now, there was this sort of you know, battle a few weeks ago between uh, the EU and AstraZeneca, which sort of ended up with the, the, the contract being published and the EU saying, yeah, yeah, we're all in favour of contract transparency. Sadly, that has not become the norm, even though that demonstrates it's quite possible to, to make it happen. And 
I really think we need to have these contracts in the public domain, not only to help answer questions like why is it country X is paying more than country Y. Now, at the moment, actually, to be honest, I, I, I worry about prices, but not that much. If you look at the sort of economic return to getting vaccines in people's arms at the moment, it's it multiples the price. So I mean, I'd be willing to pay more to get the vaccine faster in my arm, please. But <laughs> there are a whole bunch of other things that come up in contracts like you know, are you allowed to sell to other people? Are you allowed to license to other people? You know, what order is the, the vaccine going to be delivered to you rather than other people? You know, there are all these details in there that actually we really want to know as a global community because we want to know what the supply looks like. We want to know how soon it is that, you know, sort of collectively all of these different contracts add up to a world that is vaccinated and so on. I mean, there's immense public interest in this stuff and we're not seeing it. And we're not seeing it I think maybe partially because some pharmaceutical companies don't want to talk about the profits they're going to make. But I think it's also that a whole bunch of governments have signed contracts basically saying me first. And they're rightly a little embarrassed about that. Um, but, you know, their embarrassment is nothing compared to the advantage to the planet as a whole to know the outcomes of this stuff. So I would love it for the G7 or the G20 or somebody to get together and basically say, hey, look, we're all going to publish all the contracts. Maybe there are some annexes that don't get published because they've got some commercially sensitive information in. I don't care. But, you know, at least around the sort of the central bits of information that we all really need to know and want to know around, you know, delivery, pricing, licensing and so on. And, you know, that needs to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And I, the, the private companies should feel obligated to be as transparent as possible since this is, you know, an international public health crisis. And also because they wouldn't have had the power to solve it so quickly without the public support to the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I guess my cynical response is just like, this is their MO. Like they charge different prices to different countries. That's how drugs usually work. I'm in the situation of being a bit more sympathetic to them, perhaps surprisingly. I think that they made a big mistake with AIDS drugs and mm. kind of realize it, that they turned what could have been a bit of a public relations win, uh, which is they you know, created these drugs that you know, massively increased the life expectancy and quality of people with HIV and then kind of blew it by being so fussy about their IP and so on. And that, you know, this this time they've somewhat learnt their lesson. Certainly they they always start conversations around this area saying, we learnt from what happened uh, with, <laughs> yeah. with the HIV drugs. Um, and, and I think there's some truth to that. And I honestly think that, you know, right now they were part of something wonderful. I absolutely mm -hmm. agree with you. You know, a, mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of the basic research was government. Nearly all of the financing was government. You know, massive role for government. But they were part of what is a successful story. And mm -hmm. yet they are getting hammered. And I think they're partially getting hammered because governments don't want to release this information. Partially. Maybe I'm being naive. Yeah, that was re that's really surprising to hear that it's the government's that they wouldn't want to release the information because it's embarrassing that they wanted their country to go first. But I expect nothing less from the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who would be upset in the U.S. at the U.S. wanting us to be first? I mean, jeepers. Uh, so that's kind of surprising to me. I feel I want to do a Slate Plus segment on the question of vaccine patents because this is something which Charles is awesome about. Hi, I'm Francis Fry. And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. But before we get to that, I want to go back to this idea of communication and how the pandemic basically just stopped people and goods moving around the world, not entirely, but massively, and how that movement of people and goods around the world is a central and incredibly vital part of the global economy. And I want to know, Charles, a little bit about like, how long do you think it's going to take to like, will we ever come back? I feel like we're in this kind of anti-globalist swing right now. The neoliberal globalist agenda seems to be in place absolutely nowhere anymore. And 
once you lose a bunch of trade ties, it could take a long time for them to come back. And, you know, what does this mean for trade? What does this mean for migration? And like, and you have this whole theory that we are, we actually are already in a huge migration crisis, that there just isn't enough migration from poor countries to rich countries. And like, that doesn't seem like it's going to get solved anytime soon. Gosh, there's a, there's a, a lot to unpack that. I hope you are wrong that we're at the sort of the turning point, the, the peak of globalization, because I think it has been such a massive force for good. Just to take the sort of issue of trade, one of the things that the Biden administration has done that really upsets me is uh, said that it's going to sort of carry forward this thing that started under under Trump of of thinking about how we shorten our supply chains and you know, bring all the manufacturing of medical goods back home. I mean, I think that's, you know, sort of bad because we'll be paying more for them. But in some ways, that's the minor part. It's bad from a purely selfish point of view, because what makes you at risk is concentrated supply chains. So if you get all of your supply from one source and that source goes down, you're in trouble. The way to be protected, you know, just like in finance, the way to be protected is to have a diversified portfolio of suppliers. Now, you don't have a diversified portfolio of suppliers if all your suppliers are in one country, and it doesn't matter if that country is China or the United States. So I really think this is a bad move from the point of view of health security in the United States. It's clearly a sort of a bad move more broadly, this this idea of you know not just vaccine nationalism, but PPE nationalism. I mean, you, know, you, you name it, uh, any part of the medical system, we're going to try and keep it all at home. And that's partially because if you look around the world, the vast majority of countries don't produce any PPE. They don't produce any pharmaceutical products, or at least you know, very few and none of the molecules that underlie them. And so if you get rid of sort of trade in medical supplies, you're basically throwing a whole bunch of countries back to the situation of the 1800s in terms of health outcomes. You know, you're getting rid of their supply of antibiotics, you're getting rid of their supply of vaccines. So it's just sort of a a ridiculous and selfish and counterproductive approach to global health to think we're going to produce all our health supplies at home and we're going to you know, keep, them, keep them for us. It's the wrong direction to go selfishly. It's certainly the wrong direction to go for sort of moral reasons. And we need to you know, move away from that. And the same is true with migration. My colleague, Michael Clemens, has produced a fantastic paper that basically looks at how fast previous pandemics spread around the world. We've got good data on this going back for the last 120 years-ish. And as there's lots in the paper, but there's a fantastic graph that basically says, you know, here's how fast it went from one country to 120 countries. And you look at the 1918 flu pandemic, I think it was maybe a week. It took a week longer to get to you know, 120 countries and COVID-19 did it. It's, the, the difference is teeny in sort of the, the grand scheme of things. And that's not surprising. It doesn't take very much movement of people at all to spread diseases around. Now, Columbus managed to bring syphilis back from the New World with a couple of caravels. And then, you know, Vasco da Gama took it to India with a couple more. I mean, you know, it's a really tiny amount of international connectivity you need to spread infection. And nobody really plausibly is suggesting we go back that far in terms of international connectivity. So, you know, it's just limiting migration on the grounds of global health is just stupidity in the extreme. To your point, I think the problem we face is, in fact, the opposite, that even without limits on migration, we're not going to see enough of it. Now, you know, migration was was hugely important part of the story of our response to COVID-19 in that if you look at, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, here is a US company run by a Greek that hires a bunch of Turkish refugees living in Germany to develop a vaccine. This is a, a story of the power of international migration as a force for innovation. We're probably going to start seeing less of that just at the time we need more. If you look at the, the US and the United States, for example, populations are aging. They're aging even faster in Japan. I think the figure is that between now and 2050, high-income countries will lose 380 million uh, workers of, of working age. So just to sort of keep dependency ratios what they are now in the, in the economy, we need 380 million people to turn up from somewhere. They're not going to. We're going to see an aging population. We're going to see rising dependency ratios. We're going to see all of that mean what that means in terms of social security under pressure, rising healthcare costs, so on and so forth. We're not going to see nearly 380 million, even if we just open borders tomorrow. 
Because the other thing that Michael Clemens' work shows is as countries get richer and sort of pass a peak of about $10,000 per capita, the number of people who want to move goes down. And so, you know, the sort of global stock of emigrants is falling just at the time when we want a larger stock of global immigrants. Well, that can't work. You know, you need one emigrant for each immigrant. And so I think, you know, by 2050, everybody will accept the migration crisis we face is that there aren't enough migrants. We have a very interesting natural experiment now with the UK opening up its borders to 3 million Hong Kongers who were born before 1997. I think that's how it works. And they say they expect like basically one in 10 of those, so 300,000 to actually take them up on that offer and move to the UK because Hong Kong is becoming a human rights catastrophe. I'm taking the under on that one. What about, what about you? I think it won't be anywhere near 300,000. I hope it is 300,000 for the sake of the UK, at least. Uh, well, actually, for the sake of the planet. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to have these connections. I also think that that's probably optimistic, partially because if you look at the experience of the European Union, now, to be fair, nowhere in the European Union has seen the kind of slide in human rights that we've seen in, in Hong Kong. On the other hand, there are huge income disparities between the, the poorest parts of Europe and the richest parts of Europe. And yet people don't move. I mean, Greek people are all still in Greece. Spanish people are also in Spain. The Bulgarians are... Anyway, you know, I could go on. It's sort of like 3%, I think, of the European population over the last 20 years where it's been easy to move uh, have moved somewhere else. People just tend to stay where they are. They like being near their family. They like their culture. They like their the house they live in and whatever it is. So it's really hard to get people to move. And so I, I'd be surprised. That said, I have expressed that surprise on Twitter before now about the numbers they're expecting to arrive. And I gather there is data from when Canada a while ago did a similar experiment with Hong Kong. And actually a whole bunch of people from Hong Kong did move to Canada. So it may be that in the case of Hong Kong, because it's such an international city with a whole load of people already really connected worldwide, you know, both you and I will be surprised by the scale of the of the migration that follows. About the the coming maybe migrant crisis and, and how COVID could make that worse because fewer people are going to want to trade or move or deal with foreigners. There's this overall tension in the book in the response to these pandemics, which is like becoming more connected, becoming more global, I guess, increases the risk of infectious disease and it also increases the like nativism of the response. And like in the response, you can either improve the health of everyone and come up with like besides the vaccine, like relatively simple technological solutions like masks and hand washing and, you know, put a mosquito net up and then like carry on with being connected and globalized. Or you can sort of freak out and be like, we got to have the PPE made right next door to us and we can't have anyone coming here anymore and we can't have immigrants anymore. And that tension just repeats every time there is a crisis to the point where it's almost like you it's part of the package of it. And the challenge going forward is going to be this tension between the actual solutions that make sense and work and then the kind of solutions that people come to out of fear. And, and in the United States right now, it really seems like we're right on the edge of that because we have people getting vaccinated, but then we have like Governor Abbott in Texas, you know, telling people to put their masks away. And it's really crazy. You have, you know, Pfizer charging all this money for these vaccines when you can have like a bunch of cheap mask solutions and people fighting that too. Um, it really tests the logical capabilities of, of the citizens of the world. <laughs> um, Charles, can I, can I ask you that question directly as a historian of disease? Do you see this in history, this kind of thing, like put your masks away, this, this kind of rhetoric from people? And like, do you understand where it comes from? I think Emily put it really well. It is about sort of instinct. And there's a good reason it's about instinct, right? I mean, apes, uh, when a new ape wants to join the, the, the troop, uh, they, they tend to throw rocks at the ape for a couple of weeks to keep the ape out of their immediate circle, but sort of close enough that they can monitor him. And it's a sort of way to make, you know, it's a quarantine system, if you will. Uh, uh, keep him out until we're sure he's safe. And there is sort of good instinct, good instinctual reasons why uh, people react to infection by 
becoming less welcoming to strangers. And you know, by the way, there's now all you know, rafts of different uh, tests around this. You you show people pictures of infected wounds and, and, and measles, and then you ask people about their attitudes towards immigration. You know, the ones who've seen the pictures of inf- infection become more anti-migrant as a as a result. Lots of tests like that. So this is something very deep down in us. It is an instinctual reaction. It just doesn't work with the modern world and you know becomes really counterproductive in the in the modern world and you know straightforwardly evil you know in in San Francisco during the plague in the late 19th century we applied quarantines and and lockdowns purely to the Chinese population in a way that made absolutely no sense we then forced vaccination on them a, a vaccination that almost certainly didn't work and was experimental. The San Francisco Medical Board forced Chinese-Americans to take it. So, you know, our our reactions can be really bad. Uh, Instinctual reactions can be really bad and completely counterproductive. And we just need to sort of listen to our better angels, if you will, or, or listen to logic and reason around this, which is always easy to say and harder quite often for politicians to manage. But, like, all of those examples are, you know going along with our instinct to, which is a natural instinct, which has grown up through thousands of years of dealing with plagues and infectious disease, to do things that naturally protect us from plague and infectious disease, like, you know, coming into contact with people. What is the natural instinct behind Governor Abbott saying, throw your masks away? Like, why is that a popular thing for certain politicians to do? It's the trade-off, I guess, between liberty and safety, right? I mean, one of the Abbott's lines that, that, that really upset me was this idea that he was doing it on the grounds of, you know, freeing people. I mean, there has always been this this trade-off. If you go back through history, quarantines, for example, the public health people wanted quarantines against yellow fever in the east coast of, of, of the United States, for example, and, and the businesses all said, no, ah, no quarantines, you're going to stop our, you know, our ships coming in and, and our trade happening. And, you know, Fair enough. It's their livelihoods on the line. You can you can see their point of view. So it's a long-standing issue, and we've gone wrong on both sides. Uh, we have imposed excessively harsh quarantines. For example, the original cordon sanitaire that uh, went along the Austro-Hungarian border with uh, the Ottomans to keep out plague. Basically, you, you had to wait there, and if you showed any signs of plague in the 30 days you were waiting, uh, they'd shoot you, which you know, is a bit of an extreme response. Um, but also, you know, we've, we've gone too far the other way, you know, getting rid of mask mandates too early, uh, for example. You know, we can make mistakes on, on both sides and, and regularly do through history. I think, though, that you know, nobody, perhaps apart from Governor Abbott, can argue that it can't purely be about liberty, that there is a trade-off here and the right position is somewhere between shooting people at the border who have the plague uh, (laughs) and no restrictions at all. Let's have a numbers round. I think we should move away, maybe. Well, we'll see what the numbers are. Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. My number is $39 billion. That is how much so money. So I'm going to guess. Uh-huh. Can I have a guess here whether these are plague-related numbers or not? Thirty-nine right. billion. Uh, that I'm going to guess that it's not plague-related. It's like kind of plague-ish. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thirty-nine billion dollars is the amount of money in the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package that the Senate is supposed to vote on this week. And the $39 billion is for essentially a bailout of the child care sector, which I think I've made us talk about before. And it's a huge amount of money. Like, I know I can be very negative on this show, but this is a really good thing. The, the child care sector, as I've talked about, has been hit really hard by the pandemic because it's not really, it's a sector in the loosest terms because it's basically a bunch of small businesses all around the country that take care of kids before they go to kindergarten, mostly run by women, usually women of color. A lot of them had to shut down. They, they're they um, facing declines in enrollment, but like massive increase in costs. They really, really, really need the money. Congress usually kind of ignores childcare. They, it's not publicly funded until you get K through five. And last year, advocates were asking for $50 billion for a bailout. And the fact that they put $39 billion in this bill is like a sign that maybe the country actually cares about people taking care of little children in America, which you'd think they'd care about all along, but didn't really. Um, so I'm excited about it. And um, 
hopeful it'll pass. It's not even that controversial as far as I could tell. That's fantastic. I, I mentioned this work that I'm doing with Megan O'Donnell at, at CGD. She says pretty much one of the global messages coming out from the last 18 months uh, regarding the gendered impact of COVID is support for childcare needs to be central mm-hmm. to any package of response. And I mean, I have to say, if only there was 39 billion spent by the whole global aid community on childcare, I would guess that's a factor of 10 over what is spent globally by the aid sector on childcare. But I should check with Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Charles, do you have a number? So my number was going to be 11 million. But it is something we've already talked about pretty much. If it's worth talking about once, it's worth talking about once. I don't know what it is. It is the number of vaccines delivered this week to developing countries by COVAX, this international Mm. body. And 11 million is great. You know, it is compared to 6 billion people in developing countries. So that's not exactly Mm. one vaccine each. But like if you multiply 11 billion by 100, uh, 11 million million. by 100, you get to 1.1 billion, right? And 1.1 billion is the number of doses of vaccine being produced by the Serum Institute of India. And nearly all of those are going to developing countries, mostly India, but other countries too. So that, um, thereby, Eliza Rubb, it is interesting how much of the vaccines that are going to developing countries aren't going through COVAX. It's the new world in which we live. And a lot of it's being supplied by China. A lot of it's being supplied by Russia. And so, you know, hopefully the total number is going to be a lot larger than that. And again, it's back to by golly, we're rolling this vaccine out rapidly in developing countries compared to ever before, but I wish it could be faster. So I also have an 11 million number. What? I feel like my number should also be 11 million just because Charles's number was 11 million. <laughs> but Charles's number was 11 million doses. My number is 11 million dollars, and it's my favorite number from the past week. And it is, well, technically $11.5 million. It is the amount of money that was spent at... Christie's in London on a kind of crappy painting by Winston Churchill, which is a view of Marrakesh that he painted in 1943. And I just love this story so much. And the short version is basically that Churchill finds himself in North Africa with FDR in the middle of the war, as you do. And he kind of turns to to Franklin and says, you know what? We're not that far from Marrakesh. You should totally see Marrakesh. It's one of my favorite places. And FDR says, well, I mean, it's not like there's a global war on or anything. Sure, let's go to Marrakesh. And so they take the five-hour drive to Marrakesh, and Winston Churchill says, look at the beautiful Atlas Mountains. Isn't it lovely? And FDR goes, yeah, lovely, and then goes back to fight the war. Churchill Besides, he's going to stay on for a few days and do some watercolors because he's Churchill. And one of those paintings, actually in oil, he winds up giving to FDR, who presumably, if FDR has any taste in art, takes one look at it and goes, yikes, and puts it in a closet somewhere. It then gets passed down through various bits of people and closets and stuff for a few decades until it turns up in an antique shop in New Orleans, priced at $3 million, when who should walk into the antique shop but Brad Pitt, who has just finished filming Inglorious Bastards and has got World War II on the mind and goes, this would make a perfect present for my girlfriend, Angelina Jolie. So he buys it, gives it to Angelina Jolie, who presumably also looks at it and goes, what on earth is this thing? When she breaks up with Brad Pitt, she says, okay, I have no need for for this painting anymore she consigns it to christie's but at that point the chain of like celebrities who have touched this object goes from churchill to roosevelt to brad pitt to angelina jolie and it is such a sort of resonating meme of celebrity that it sells for 11 and a half million dollars there's no like artistic merit to it but it's still 11 and a half million dollars worth of art yeah so as you say the painting is worth zero churchill and roosevelt (laughs) touching it adds three million angelina and brad touching it adds another 8.5 well that makes exactly actually (laughs) (laughs) that does make sense And, uh, and it's super we don't know who bought it but if you look at the estimate that christie's put on it they basically had an estimate that assumed that the Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie premium was zero. They estimated it to sell about three million. 
Which just goes to show how out of touch Christie's is. <laughs> now someone's going to make it into an NFT or something, and it's going to sell for millions multiple well, times, this is, right? This is my theory, is, is, <laughs> is it's basically, it is a celebrity NFT. Like we just saw Blau sell, I think, $11.6 million worth of NFTs. We saw Grimes sell Wait, like Wait, say what NFT half. is in, in case an, a listener doesn't know. Non-fungible tokens, they're basically digital artworks. Digital art. Grimes sold five and a half million dollars of, of these things. And they're worth that much money just because of that celebrity association, right? But it doesn't need to be digital. It works mm-hmm. even in the in the realm of art. And this is not new, right? People always want to have things new-ish. that famous people have had or made new-ish. There's definitely a sort of small subset of the collector universe who loves, you know, I mean, it goes back to, I guess, you know, like, here's a piece of the true cross or something like that that you get in in religion but i think it's getting bigger and bigger that kind of like celebrity memorabilia mm. and i apologized for um offending anyone who thinks that i just said that a piece of the true cross was a piece of celebrity memorabilia <laughs> it's almost certainly not a piece of a true cross <laughs> So I think that's it for us this week. Thanks, Charles, for coming on. It was amazing to have you. We will have a Slate Plus segment about patents with you. Thanks so much to Jessamine Molly for producing. Thanks to all of you folks for sending in your questions and comments to slatemoney at slate.com. We will be back on Tuesday with Josh Brown talking about Wall Street, the great Oliver Stone movie from 1987, which does hold up. Um, tune in for that and then after that for another normal Slate Money next Saturday so thanks for listening as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed when I was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.